Let's get into this week. So pretty much we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, the characteristics of Scripture uh, tell you what the Scriptures claim for themselves, the, the uh, attributes that the Scriptures themselves have. And we've seen throughout this that the character of God and the character of Scripture are pretty much the same thing because it is His Word after all. Uh, we saw that uh, God's Word is authoritative uh, because it is God's Word. The Bible claims to be God's Word, and therefore it is authoritative in our lives. It, it's not just an authority in our lives, it is the authority in our lives. We also saw that, uh, that the Bible is true, uh, and that, that's because God is truthful. Uh, he speaks in truthful ways, and so when God speaks, He speaks truth. We also saw that because God is an effective communicator, that the Bible is clear. And we talked about the clarity of Scripture and, and all that that means. Uh, there are two more characteristics. One I'm, I'm just going to briefly hit on today, uh, and that's the necessity of Scripture. Um, I'll, I'll touch on that just briefly, but the one I'm going to spend the most time on today is the last characteristic is the sufficiency of Scripture and exactly what does that mean. Um, I do want to say, because I have been using Wayne Grudem's material pretty much exclusively throughout this series, uh, I'm, I'm deviating from Grudem a little bit on, on this issue. Uh, and so I'm, the definition that you have here is from Matthew Barrett's book, Sola Scriptura. Uh, the definition is this. Um, well, before I get into the definition, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much uh, for this time. We thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the ability that we have to respond to you. Um, thank you for the ability that we have to glorify you and to honor you in all that we say and do. Lord, I pray that you would uh, give us wisdom when we come to your word. Lord, I pray that you give us humility, give us a learner spirit and an attitude of submission before you uh, because you are the creator of the universe. You are the creator of each person here. And Lord, we owe the very breath that we take right now to you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would um, help us to understand who you are and how you speak through your word. Lord, help us to understand that accurately, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I did want to say, too, before I get into the definition, uh, <clears throat> that it's important to remember uh, the fall. We don't come to anything in life um, neutral. We don't look around the world we don't, and, and interpret the world around us uh, in a neutral way. No one does. Because of the fall, our interpretation of life, our interpretation of creation, and our interpretation of the Bible is, is not always going to be accurate. And so that's why we need uh, the Bible itself to help us in our interpretation of the world around us, to help us even in our interpretation of our own selves. We looked at last week, we talked about the fact that we can even deceive ourselves. We can be self-deceived, and, uh, and, and we'll see some more of that today. But the first thing we need to do is understand that we, we do not come to uh, life in general neutrally. We come fallen. We come with faulty interpretations, which is why we need God's revelation. 
God's revelation. Remember we talked about the fact that uh, we looked in Psalm 119 that the Bible is described as a light to our feet. And without that light, we walk in darkness. And walking is just a metaphor in the Bible for living life. And so when we live our lives, we are basically in a dark room and we need the illumination of the Bible. The Bible is a light to our feet. It, it helps us to interpret the way we need to go. And, and interpret it accurately. So, uh, let's look at the Bible's sufficiency. So, the definition, definition we're using, uh, I'm going to give you actually one, and then we're going to look at, a, at another kind of explanation of the definition. Uh, and it says, the sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for His glory are given to us in the Scriptures. And once again, uh, we see that the authority of Scripture and sufficiency go hand in hand. Um, because this is our authoritative interpretation, if you will, uh, it is sufficient for what we need. And if you think about it, um, if you have a child and this child is taking a trip, and I'm just asking you to think creatively with me, um, and, and they're going a way that they've never been. Let's say they're going cutting through the forest. Um, this is uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Uh, and there's dangers in the forest, uh, and you're giving them instruction. Now, as a good parent, you're going to give them instruction, and it will be authoritative. Now, I know this metaphor is going to break down uh, because parents aren't as authoritative as God is. Uh, but you're giving your child instruction for making this journey. And you're going to give them instruction that's authoritative. You're also going to give them instruction that's clear. And you're going to give them sufficient instruction. In other words, what they need to make this journey, you're going to give them, right? And that's sort of what we're looking at with the sufficiency of Scripture. It is, a, it, it is authoritative uh, in the sense that it gives us God's perspective, God's view of life, God's view of how, who He is, and how we should live our lives, but it's also sufficient in what He gives. Um, when you look past, uh, just after the Reformation, uh, post-Reformation theologians often refer to the sufficiency of Scripture as the perfection of Scripture. Scripture is perfect in what it gives us. It's the perfect standard of faith and practice. Um, so, let's look at another explanation. I want to give you the Westminster Confession of Faith because I think it's helpful on this point. And then we're going to look at some of the, uh, we're going to look at how, uh, four, four points that I have here for understanding the definition. The whole counsel of God, this is Westminster Confession of Faith, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or by traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered in light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. That's a mouthful. Uh, we're going to kind of look at some of the things that, he, that the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about. 
So what, is, what does it mean? Uh, well, let's look. First, it means that all things necessary for God's glory and salvation and the Christian life are given to us in the Scripture. Scripture is comprehensive in its scope regarding glorifying God and living the Christian life. Everything we need for faith and practice, everything we need for glorifying God, we have in the Bible. It is perfect in that sense. Now, no, sufficiency of Scripture does not mean that it tells us everything about life. If if you're going to hire a plumber to come work at your house... Um, you might be surprised if they have a question about your plumbing and they open up their Bible. Um, we talked about accounting last week. Uh, the Bible's not going to tell you everything about accounting. Um, so if you're going to hire an accountant, you're probably not going to have them have their Bible when they're, when they're doing your taxes open. Uh, now, let me ask this question to help us think about that, because the Bible does talk about those things. Those things aren't excluded from the Bible. Uh, it's just some of the implications of how they do their job is not going to, they're not going to find that in Scripture. So if you're going to hire a plumber or an electrician or any, anyone to do work on your house, um, is your tendency to hire a Christian or a non-Christian? That's a genuine question. A Christian. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I was kind of thinking about this. If I were going to hire somebody, I would probably hire someone who I knew to be a believer over someone I knew not to be a believer. Now, why is that? Why would that be true? Yeah, Phil. Yeah, you're, you're gonna, your expectation of someone who's a Christian is that they're going to do the work with integrity. Now, is there any other reason you would hire a Christian besides integrity? Support a brother? Yeah, there's a, a community aspect involved. Good. What about honesty? I guess that's sort of tied up with integrity. Uh, yeah, we would expect some honesty. Uh, we would expect a level of workmanship that, would be, that the job would be done right. Why would we expect those things? Exactly. The Bible speaks to how we do our jobs, regardless of whether you're a plumber, a CPA, an electrician, or whatever it is. The Bible speaks to how we live our lives. Now, it's not going to tell your plumber how to run your water line or your sewer line, um, but it will speak to how they do that job, how they perform that job. Um, And so, That's what the sufficiency of Scripture is talking about. It's comprehensive in its scope. Everything we need to live for God's glory, everything we need to live live in this world in a way that honors Him is given to us in the Bible. We don't have to look anywhere else. The Bible is sufficient for those things. Uh, It's sufficient for the unbeliever, right? What is the unbeliever's biggest problem? The unbeliever's biggest problem is the fact that they're not reconciled to their creator. And so the Bible is sufficient for the unbeliever. It gives the unbeliever everything the unbeliever needs to know and to believe and to do in order to be reconciled with God. It's sufficient for the believer. Everything we need, and we've kind of been talking about this, but everything we need to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God, we find in the Bible. It's sufficient 
to live in obedience to God and for his glory. So, you'll notice in the Westminster Confession of Faith a helpful qualification. Um, Oh, goodness, I need that. Um, It says, uh, second, third line, it says, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Uh, So, what does that mean? Well, it means that some matters are addressed directly in the Bible, uh, some matters are uh, specifically spelled out, and some matters are, are addressed indirectly. Uh, and so, those are going to require some thinking, some meditating, even some discussion with other people, uh, and all of those things are helpful to think through some of the implications and applications of things that aren't directly spoken to in, in the Word of God. Uh, just one example, uh, doctrinally, uh, you will not find the Trinity directly described or addressed in the Bible, it, but it can be deduced from the teachings of Scripture. So the Scripture's clear on that issue, but you're not going to find a passage that talks about the word Trinity. Um, now, you will see the implications of that, and that's what I mean. So you can deduce from Scripture all that we need to honor God and all that we need to believe to honor God. Um, some of the more nuanced questions about church polity aren't going to be directly dis, uh, addressed in Scripture. But we can deduce from Scripture. It's not to say that we can't come to a conclusion. We can deduce from Scripture uh, what it teaches on those issues. Um, again, there are times that we need to think through the implications and applications of a particular teaching of Scripture um, that have implications on our doctrine and our Christian living. Secondly, Uh, Sufficiency means that nothing should be added to the Bible, Um, and this is important. Um, And it says, here unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or by traditions of men. Um, The Bible is sufficient in the sense that we don't add to it. So, we don't need extra revelation. Um, We don't need, for example, the Book of Mormon. Uh, the Book of Mormon is not on the same level with Scripture at all. Um, and anytime we elevate any additional revelation to the authority of Scripture, we're in trouble. Um, you see in Christian science, the uh, science and health and the key to the Scriptures uh, as additional revelation. Um, but notice in, in this, it, re- it refers to two things specifically. Uh, new revelations of the Spirit, which the Book of Mormon would fit into that, uh, uh, or the traditions of men. But let me go back to uh, more revelation from the Spirit. We need to be really, really careful with saying, um, I have a word from the Lord. Um, We don't add to Scripture. This is perfect revelation for what we need. Um, I once had a discussion with a, a woman who was uh, convinced um, that God had told her to divorce her husband. Um, and, and the divorce was not, uh, and, and, and I know there's a little bit of debate on this, so, but, but either way you look at scriptural teaching on divorce, uh, it was not a biblical divorce in any way, shape, or form. Uh, no, in no way could you take her situation and say, yes, the Bible would, would, would be okay with you getting a divorce. Uh, but she was convinced that God told her to get a divorce. Um, we need to be really careful when 
when someone says, I have a word from the Lord, and especially when that contradicts what this book says. This is our sufficient guide for life. Um, I would be careful, too, uh, of, of so-called gurus. Um, and we have gurus everywhere, right? Um, who, give me some gurus. Who? Tech gurus? Uh, who was that? <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I was thinking more like uh, people who are giving you counselor wisdom for life. Uh, we have gurus. You don't have to name them. Uh, just take it. We have gurus. Uh, I would be careful of people who are giving advice when it contradicts the Bible. Um, and even, even uh, I, you know, I was thinking about this when I was talking to Jason this morning because we were talking about uh, one person in particular who... Uh, who most of us would have a lot of respect for, but the point we were making when we were talking is, is this person is not infallible. Um, and so I would even be careful of elevating Christian preachers to the point where what they say is gospel. Um, and, and again, we'll look at this a little bit when we get move, move through the notes today. Um, be careful of gurus, but also we don't want to put tradition. Um, and this is really the sola scriptura, and that's what we're looking at. The characteristic, the four characteristics of scripture uh, are what the reformers came up, are, uh, the doctrine of the reformers were teaching in response to the Roman Catholic Church uh, who elevated tradition with a capital T to scripture. In other words, uh, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he is speaking with the authority of the Bible. He, his tradition, what, what the Pope spoke throughout history are on the same level and really, depending on how you look at it, probably elevated above the Bible uh, because if you think about it, and this goes back to, uh, I have a word from the Lord. If God is speaking to someone today, whether it be the Pope, whether it be just an individual, that word is much more relevant than the Bible, Right? Because it's a word today. Uh, and so, when it, whenever you elevate tradition, which is usually going back to man, uh, or elevate a person who says, I have a word from the Lord, to the level of Scripture, you're putting those things on par with Scripture, and, uh, and it's not. God's word is sufficient in that sense. Okay. Uh, number three. Oh, so basically, let me make one final point. Anything we have next to Scripture, because you'll notice uh, that I'm using the Westminster Confession of Faith sort of to guide the outline, at least at this point. Um, am I elevating tradition? No, because I understand that the Westminster Confession of Faith is not an infallible document. It is helpful, and tradition can be helpful, and I think this is, the, this is the problem. Sometimes in evangelicalism, you have this anti-tradition, uh, anti-anything but the Bible, um, and to, to an extreme that I don't think is justified. Tradition can be helpful if we use it the way I think it's supposed to be used. Tradition should be used. I mean, you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith. It has stood the test of time. You look at the creeds, they have stood the test of time. Um, now, when we use those things, they need to be supportive of the Word of God and not in contradiction to the Word of God. And if at any point, anything, tradition or whatever we're using, 
contradicts the Word of God, then that thing needs to go, whatever it is, and because the Word of God is sufficient. It is our authority. So, every other source, fallible. The Bible, infallible. Um, and so, if there's a contradiction, then the other thing has to go. It has to be subservient to the Word of God. Okay, thirdly, sufficiency does not preclude the inward illumination of the Spirit. We talked about this. Um, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says we acknowledge right after it says uh, nothing is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit. Then it goes on to say, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So pretty much what that saying is, is we've kind of already covered this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, we are dependent on the illumination of the Spirit to rightly understand His Word. It's never in contradiction. It's not like the Spirit's given us new revelations. He's just opening our eyes to understand the revelation that God has given us. Um, and so... Uh, it does not, sufficiency does not preclude inward illumination. Uh, Matthew Barrett helpfully writes this, while we should not be seeking uh, revelation from the Spirit in addition to Scripture, we must not go to the other extreme, as some evangelical rationalists have done, and eliminate the Spirit entirely. God has given us His Word. It's sufficient. He's given us His Spirit, who helps us to rightly understand His Word. So, we need the illumination of the Spirit. Uh, fourth point. Sufficiency does not exclude general revelation. Um, and if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 19. Um, what you're going to see in Psalm 19 is it's pretty much divided into uh, the first half first section is about general revelation, then the second section is about uh, the Bible or special revelation. Uh, sufficiency does not exclude general revelation. Uh, general revelation is what we see in nature, and, and uh, Dan's already kind of preached through this uh, when he was in Romans 1. We have general revelation. General revelation can give us a lot of information about God and God's character. Uh, general revelation is enough to condemn us, we saw in uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, but it's not enough to save us, which is why we need the Bible. General revelation is not sufficient in that sense. Uh, however, we don't exclude general revelation. Uh, general rev revelation does bear witness to the Creator. Um, however, it could be wrong to conclude that general revelation is no longer relevant since we have the Bible. Um, Psalm 119. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Notice how it describes this. Day to day pours, forth, or pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from, uh, from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Again, all of this is saying, and you can look throughout the Psalms, and it talks over and over about the, the majesty of creation speaks to 
God's character, and we can see that. When we see nature, we learn about who God is. We learn about the character of God. But it is limited in what it can do. It's not sufficient. Then we get to the last half of this psalm. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And I think we've looked at this before, but you get the idea. You have general revelation, which teaches us about God. You have the Bible or special revelation, which is sufficient, but that doesn't mean that we no longer need general revelation or no longer can use general revelation. General revelation is still helpful. So now that we've kind of looked at the definition and talked about uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith and and what it says, um, let's look at, at what Scripture says. Um, scripture does, in fact, affirm, affirm that it is sufficient. It does so, first of all, by prohibiting uh, the addition of words to the Bible. And this is over and over in the Bible. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, if you'll turn there, because we'll look at a couple of things in Deuteronomy. <clears throat> so, Deuteronomy 4 is important uh, in the nation of Israel because uh, before Deuteronomy 4, uh, chapters 1 through 3, you pretty much have the story of Israel, uh, and they, so going back to Joshua and Caleb, you remember they were spies sent into the promised land to spy out the land. Those spies came back, and there were different reports, right? Joshua and Caleb said, the land is good, everything God said is true. Let's go. The other spies, man, the land is great, but there's some really big dudes there. <laughs> we can't do it. We can't do it. So, uh, so you have this, this situation, and what happened is, so for a generation, these people, Israel, weren't, they weren't allowed to go into the promised land. And in fact, until that generation died off, only Joshua and Caleb were able to go in. Why? Because God's word was sufficient for them. They heard the word of the Lord. They were given the commands. They were given instruction. They went in in faith. And we're going to look at this because God's word is always meant to elicit trust and faith. Always. They heard the command of the Lord. They heard the word of the Lord. They trusted. They obeyed. The other spies, they heard the word of the Lord, but the circumstances didn't line up. Yes, God, I know what you said, but you didn't mention how big the people were there. And so God's word was not sufficient for them. So Deuteronomy 1 through 3 kind of recounts that. Again, chapter 4, Moses is giving uh, instruction, and he says, oh, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land of the Lord, uh, the God of your fathers is giving you. Verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you. The implication of this, not adding or taking away from, is what God says is sufficient. Um, it's what we need. 
We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Um, so we, you can also see that in Deuteronomy 32. We're not going to look there. Um, so you don't need to add to it. it this is, God's word is perfect for, for Israel. God's instructions for going into the promised land were perfect. They were sufficient. They were what Israel needed, um, and they needed to obey those. Flip over to Proverbs 30. Verses 5 and 6. We looked at verse 5 three weeks ago, I think, three or four weeks ago. It says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Verse 6. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Again, God's word is sufficient. It is what we need. No more, no less. We don't add to it. We don't change it. Uh, it's, it's what we need. Notice again verse 5. I just want to make this connection because I think this is so helpful. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Again, God's word should elicit a response of trust and dependence and faith. Those who take refuge in him, they're trusting, they're depending they are relying on God. Uh, and so we don't, again, for, uh, verse 6, we don't add to his words, uh, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Um, Revelation 22, you're probably all familiar with this one. Uh, Revelation 22, verse 18. Uh, John writes this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him plagues described in this book, and if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, uh, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Uh, Again, you see this throughout Scripture. You don't take away, you don't add to. God's word is sufficient. Uh, You don't have to turn here, but in Jeremiah 26.2, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. So, Jeremiah, take your stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak these words. And it says, uh, speak the words of the Lord. And then it says, all the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. In other words, Jeremiah, you don't have the liberty of deciding what to say. You're speaking on my behalf to my people. You don't get to modify it. You don't get to change it. I mean, think back to um, uh, Jonah. Jonah didn't like the message that he was going to preach. Uh, Prophets didn't have the luxury of deciding what they could say. They couldn't tone it down because they didn't want to offend anybody. They They couldn't withhold part of God's revelation because God's word is sufficient. So we don't hold back. We don't change. Uh, we speak the truth in love. Um, again, uh, our next. So first thing, Scripture affirms that it is sufficient by prohibiting adding to God's revelation. Uh, secondly, uh, Psalm 119.1 Go ahead and turn there. You should be almost there. You should be in Proverbs still. Uh, 
Psalm 119.1 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And so to walk in the law of the Lord is to be blameless. Again, this this, uh, uh, indicates that when we follow what the Bible says, it's what we need. It's sufficient for us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And so all we need to do to be blameless is to walk in the way of the Lord. God's word is sufficient for us. Um, and this is, this is really helpful um, and discouraging sometimes, too, uh, because we're never going to walk perfectly in the law of the Lord. But this is what God requires. So often we want to make it really complicated. Just walk in the way of the Lord. Walk in His law. Walk in His commandments. Um, <clears throat> and you will be blameless. Um, C, Jesus affirms the sufficiency of Scripture in Matthew 4. And you're all familiar with this, I'm sure. Jesus is being tempted. Uh, By the way, um, he quotes, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 8 in that same context of what we were talking about earlier. Uh, Jesus was led up by the Spirit, verse 1 says, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones uh, to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is affirming the sufficiency of Scripture. If you think about it, what we need for life physically is food and water, right? So Jesus is saying, Man does not live by bread alone. You live by bread alone physically, but spiritually, you live by the Word of God. God's Word is sufficient for you to live and thrive spiritually. It's what we need uh, to walk before the Lord in a way that glorifies Him and honors Him. Uh, Also, uh, the Bereans were characterized as believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah, and turn here too, this is Acts 17. You'll remember Paul and Silas were uh, sent to Berea. Uh, when Paul got there, he, he did what he always does. Uh, he goes to the synagogue and he proclaims the gospel. And it says in verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these were so. Uh, let me keep going. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So, Paul and Silas, they go to Berea, they go into the synagogue, they preach the gospel. What do the Bereans do? They're listening to Paul and they have their Bible open, which is what we need to be doing. Anytime you listen to a preacher, you listen with your Bible open. And, and I'm not saying you have to be skeptical about everything, Dan. don't worry, Uh, but we do need to listen in a way that is discerning with an ear to the Word of God, and we need to be asking the question, is what this person's saying true to the Word? The Bereans were implicitly acknowledging the sufficiency of Scripture by examining Paul's preaching with the Word of God. Um, 
next, oh, by the way, I just want to point out, the reason I read verse 12 is that many of them, therefore, believed. Again, word of God is always meant to elicit trust and dependence and faith. 2 Timothy 3, turn there, Paul taught, lastly, Paul taught this sufficiency of Scripture. This has, again, kind of been our theme verse uh, through this whole series. Um, 2 Timothy 3, go ahead and turn there. We're actually going to start in verse 14 today. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy. Again, Timothy is, is Paul's young protege that he left uh, in, in probably not the easiest of pastoral situations. Uh, he says, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Again, Scripture is sufficient for salvation. <clears throat> and then we're going to see now, verse 16, 17, that it's sufficient for life. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, if we want to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to God, if we want to live a life that where we have good works, we're doing the things God wants us to do, Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All that we need for life and godliness, this is sufficient. It's what we need. <clears throat> Last week, we, uh, we again talked about Psalm 119, 105, that God's Word is a lamp to our feet. Um, without the Word, without uh, the Bible as our instruction, um, then we walk on a path in darkness, um, and we need the Word of God to lighten our way. Um, so, the Bible is profitable to make us wise for salvation. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's not merely helpful. It is the source that we need. Um, I like to read Christian books, and I find that they often can be very helpful. Um, but they're no replacement for the Word of God. Um, this is sufficient. Every other book that you're going to read by a Christian author is fallible. Why? Because the author is fallible. Um, we must always read with discernment, especially in our day-to-day, -day, um, when there's uh, no end of uh, false teaching, even in Christian bookstores. So, let's look at and close... Uh, with three contemporary challenges to sufficiency of Scripture. And I kind of alluded to, not alluded to, I discussed this uh, a few weeks ago, all three of these actually, uh, but let's look at them just briefly one more time. Obviously, one challenge to sufficiency of Scripture is traditionalism. Uh, we saw that with the Roman Catholic Church. Its teachings elevated oral tradition of the church to the same level as Scripture. Um, and so, and, and in some ways, even above the level of Scripture. Um, so, the oral traditions of the Roman Catholic Church are thought to be infallible. Uh, and so, 
when you do that, you elevate it to the level of authority of the Word of God, and, and this is sufficient. We do not need tradition. We do not need someone else interpreting the Bible for us. Again, preachers and teachers are helpful, um, but the Word of God is what we need. Uh, the, the Reformation phrase, sola scriptura, was really a response to the Roman Catholic teaching. Uh, now, sometimes we can do this in, in our uh, denominations today. We can elevate tradition to the level of Bible, and, and that is always going to be wrong. Again, it can, tradition is helpful as a supplement to the Bible, but never, ever is it to be on the same level as the Bible. Um, science and reason, another challenge to the sufficiency of Scripture. Again, uh, and this really flows out of the Enlightenment. We've already talked about all this. But with the Enlightenment, um, there, was, there was this belief, and it still persists today, and it all started, not started, but he was the one that coined the phrase, John Locke, tabula rosa. John Locke taught and believed that that we are born a blank slate. That's Latin tabula rosa. In other words, when we're born, we're born neutral. Our, our, our minds are unaffected by the fall, and therefore we have the ability to reason accurately and give interpretations accurately. Um, by the way, uh, just as a side note, that's why education is often seen as the answer for our moral problems. Education is not the answer for our moral problems. Our moral problems are only uh, fixed when we come to God's Word. Uh, so, we have this idea that we are born a blank slate, and therefore we can use our reason in an in, in objective, unbiased way, uh, and we know that's not true. The fall affected our reasoning ability, and so every interpretation that we make is going to be flawed. Um, so, as a result of the Enlightenment, we saw that reason was given a higher position than the Bible, and the Bible was judged. Now, reason becomes the judge over the Bible, determining what part of the Bible is true or untrue. Uh, again, Barrett is helpful here. He writes that science is a magnificent means through which our reason explores the natural order. It makes discoveries, and if done correctly, leads us to worship our Creator. But, if done incorrectly, um, it can undermine the authority and the teaching of the Bible. But, sola scriptura doesn't mean Bible without science. Um, I mean, we, we obviously, we have general revelation, and general revelation can be helpful. We don't ignore it, we just realize that we are interpreting general revelation through the lens of a fallen, as a, as a fallen human being. Um, yeah, so the, the mistake that is common today is that we elevate Scripture, uh, I'm sorry, we elevate science above Scripture. Um, again, Barrett writes this, uh, in the end, science, when done rightly, will always conform to Scripture. Science in and of itself is not an enemy of Scripture. Indeed, science serves to brilliantly support Christianity. Science becomes problematic only when we misuse it and draw false conclusions, conclusions that are incompatible with the truth of God's Word. Again, so 
uh, science and reason can be a challenge to uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. And lastly, again, we talked about this, uh, experience and culture can challenge the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, and, and this one, I think, is really important, especially in our day and age, because uh, one of the things that I think postmodernism did was it, uh, it showed the foolishness of reason. Um, and, and, and in some sense, postmodernism was helpful uh, because uh, it destroyed the foundation of the Enlightenment. Um, however, uh, postmodernism uh, was incredibly harmful um, because it, may, it elevated our experience over everything. So we went from the Bible being the authority again, and I'm repeating myself from a couple weeks ago, uh, to tradition. Tradition got uh, annihilated by the Enlightenment, which elevated reason above the Bible, and then postmodernism came along and showed the foolishness of that and removed reason, but then our experience became the sole authority, and it was elevated above the Bible. Um, and so uh, our culture and our experience is going to be wrong because we are fallen creatures. We can misinterpret. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to read this to you. I found this interesting. Um, Isaiah, when I was preparing, I came across this, and um, it was really helpful. Isaiah 5 8 verse 18 Okay, I'm going to read 18 through 23. And notice my point here is this. Our interpretation is often wrong because we are fallen human beings. Uh, Isaiah writes, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin uh, as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That's where we are, sort of. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. Who, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and who deprive the innocent of his right. Again, we can call good evil and evil good. And we see that happening our experience and our culture, what, just because culture identifies something as being good does not mean that it is good. <clears throat> our culture is often at odds with the Bible. Um, and experience, our experience is often at odds with the Bible. And so, uh, but I'll come to experience in a minute. I did want to give you one example. Uh, 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 there's an Episcopal bishop by the name of John Shelby Spong. Um, he's written a book called Living in Sin. A bishop rethinks human sexuality. And he writes this. I stand ready to reject the Bible in favor of something that is more human, more life-giving, and dare I say, more godlike. When our When our, the wisdom of culture is elevated above the Bible, we're walking in darkness. We're not walking in the light. And it, the interesting thing that I find uh, in his quote is that he's rejecting the Bible in favor of something more human, 
more life-giving and more godlike. How can you Bible is sufficient in all of those areas. If you want to know what it is to be human, this is what you need. If you want to know how to be more godlike, this is what you need. Uh, not culture, not culture's expectations and cultural norms. Um, again, our experience uh, can, can uh, undermine the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, even some Christians we've already talked about uh, will elevate spiritual experience above the Bible. And I am out of time, so I can't go over some more of this. Uh, but when this happens, basically our experience becomes the judge over Scripture. Um, and that's always a scary thing. Let me just close by reading what may be one of the most frightening passages in the Bible. <clears throat> Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the implications of this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who sits in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So these people are having a religious experience. And from all I can tell, they honestly believe them to be genuine. And Jesus says to them, and then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, our experience can never trump Scripture. Um, our culture can never trump Scripture. Um, scripture is sufficient. And, and that gives us great comfort, if I can go a little bit longer. gives us great comfort when you're talking to people, when you're sharing the gospel don't be afraid to use the word. That's what we have it for. When you're, when you're counseling coworkers or what have you, the Bible's what they need. Not your opinions. Not Oprah's opinions. Um, the Bible is what we need. Um, Psalm 1 says this, and I'll close here. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. May we be those kinds of people. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity. Thank you for the authority. Thank you for your truthfulness. Lord, thank you that it's sufficient for what we need. Lord, I pray you give us wisdom. I pray that you would give us hearts that long to know you and your word more. Um, Lord, may we devote our time and energies and energy into understanding your word in greater depth. Um, Father, help us, forgive us for where, where we have turned away from your word um, and maybe exalted something else above it. Lord, help us to uh, sit at your feet and listen to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.